0: And now we are joined by a special guest today on the podcast, our second guest that has joined us today on the Double Nothing podcast, played college ball at Arizona from 2000 to 2004, recording 85 wins in his four years, a former ATP tennis coach helping Taylor Dent reach as high as 21 in the world, and then progressed to an assistant coach at Arizona for seven years, and now was the 2018 Wilson ITA Southwest Coach of the Year, now he is in his eighth year at Loyola Marymount University as the men's tennis coach and also Alex Alex's coach. Welcome to the show, Coach Tom Lloyd. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. This is
0: exciting. Very exciting. So uh, we see your LA sports hat on. Uh, sounds like you're a big sports fan. How are you doing with the last few weeks and uh, watching your Dodgers play right now?
1: Well, actually, my Dodgers were... Uh Inher- I mean, kind of adopted. I'm an Angels fan. Grew up in Orange County, Anaheim, but um, family was always a Dodgers fan back in the day because uh, they ruled the land, but uh, grew up actually an Angels fan. So, uh, you know, don't dislike the Dodgers, but uh, L.A. fan other than the Angels where it was uh, the Kings and the Lakers, huge Lakers fan. And then uh, when they, uh, they started the franchise in Anaheim with the Anaheim Ducks, kind of moved over to that. So not a, not an LA team that I dislike.
2: Has the, has the angels always been in, um, in
1: Southern California? No, no, they've, uh, they, they moved over, but they were originally, they were originally LA. They were on the, uh, the polo grounds back in the day, way back in the day. And then now, uh, actually, uh, an alum from, uh, University of Arizona, Artie Moreno was the first minority that owned a major league franchise. And, uh, put the la tag back on them uh so they're actually considered uh, la
0: so going to your arizona days how was how was the college basketball team football team uh when you were at arizona in the early 2000s the
1: the football team in arizona yeah both football and basketball well basketball was huge basketball what was it i started in 99 so they were Top four in the country, basketball. I mean, they had the likes of uh, Luke Walton, Lauren Woods, Gilbert Arenas. Uh, I mean, they were loaded. Richard uh, Jefferson. Yep, Richard Jefferson. Um, so they made it to the finals and lost to Duke, I believe, my – was it my sophomore year? So 2001, and uh, it was a tough one. But, yeah, basketball, it was point guard U. I mean, they had something like 26, 27 straight years into the dance. Uh, football, my freshman year, I started in 99. They had a coach, Dick Tomey. They came off, I believe, a Holiday Bowl win in 98 against Miami, which was huge over the U. And it was the whole desert swarm with Teddy Bruschi and, and those guys back in the day. And I distinctly remember it freshman year going over to the older guy's place and had a uh, getting ready to watch the game they played Penn State and LeVar Arrington absolutely took it to us it was 56 to 56 to nothing and uh, it Jesus. was it was a long time to recover uh, Arizona didn't make a bowl game for 10 years so it's I never saw a bowl game in college and then finally got to see one when I was coaching um, yeah that's
2: crazy I want to know a little bit about like the dynamic too of when you were at Arizona and how that was um, like like you know what other teams did you guys interact with what was like kind of sort of your, your schedule like how how was that experience and like where else were you looking like kind of why was uh, Arizona the choice for you at that time
1: well I, I mean grew, growing up in Southern California I was the typical kind of young naive I actually peaked at the right time I played multiple sports you know ba- uh, baseball and soccer and I was actually better in baseball but peaked at the right time I took trips to USD, Fresno State, and then uh, I was playing the Copper Bowl. Coach Wright um, actually saw me, which was in Tucson, and brought me out on a trip and made an offer and showed me a, a great time at a Power 5 school. So I canceled my trips to uh, TCU, Cal, and, uh, and uh, my, uh, my one to UCLA and signed with Arizona. But as far as the sports teams there, I mean, basketball ruled the land. Softball was was huge believe it or not they had they were a dynasty they still are um but the teams that we hung out with uh believe it or not we hung out with women's soccer uh softball uh gymnastics and uh obviously women's tennis uh, a few guys on the baseball team but it's a big school i mean you know eight 17 16 programs i believe at that time and you know um we got along with most of the teams and uh, had a good time
0: for some reason, most
1: men's tennis
0: programs always are associated with women's soccer. I don't know why that is, you know?
1: Yeah. it's heavily associated with uh, women's soccer. Yeah, I actually, I married one of the soccer girls, so uh, it ended up working out well for me. Um, but yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know. When I first got there, there was a year where they actually hated us because they challenged us to a... A soccer game men's tennis versus women's soccer and we uh it wasn't pretty that was a year right before i got there and i couldn't understand why the women's soccer team hated men's tennis so found out that they uh beat them on their uh on their home turf and it was it was pretty bitter for about a year and a half it's a good recovery yeah yeah so we got got i I think how
0: does how does a coach feel about that because um you know i've been around college tennis majority of my life and my dad was a college tennis coach for 25 years when your program, when you're with student athletes, your tennis team, women's tennis team, whatever it is, goes and plays field hockey or soccer, does a coach hold his breath
1: about that and it just nervous as hell until the next day? I mean, nowadays, yeah, because there's, I guess we're, we're so much in the know with social media and, you know, luckily we didn't have that much social media back in my day, but I mean, guys or someone's always going to post it. So a lot of times, Actually, you know, that was where you had a lot of cross sports. So, I mean, we, a lot of us grew up playing three different sports. So for the tennis guys to go out and play soccer, it was more of like a, like, almost like a CrossFit for us. You know, we had a bunch of internationals on the team from, you know, the Dominican Republic, Sweden, France. So, I mean, it was like second nature for them, you know, where it got a little, little dicey is when we'd go out and start playing basketball with sprained ankles. And a lot of these, a lot of these international guys didn't know how to play basketball. So it got a little testy there, but um, I, you know right now, if guys wanted to go play soccer, I've got, you know, or basketball, I've got a rule. If we're going to go do it, um, we got to have a good week of practice and, uh, all of our ankles get taped. It's the first thing we do before we go out and do any of that. Just, uh, not for the simple fact that I don't trust my guys as athletes, but last thing you want to do is step on the wrong person's foot or in a, in a gopher hole. And then there goes your season. You no, know,
0: it's a smart, uh, now, I mean, nowadays, you know, with, it's uh you don't wanna get a phone call at three a.m. in the morning that your student athlete's been arrested. So it's a little bit different. But I remember back then it was more, you know, you don't want your
1: player to go get hurt, you know, messing
0: around on the soccer field. So it's a little bit yeah. different
1: nowadays. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, you know, I mean my coach was all for us playing other sports and stuff within within reason, soccer, you know, basketball. I mean pretty much cut it there. I mean you gotta you got to keep the guys active and want more. And, you know, it's tough to just go out and say, let's, you know, let's run sprints or let's do this or that. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a coach that gave us some latitude. Yeah. I mean, for me, like from a player perspective, I think that's definitely like
2: something that's very, very fun because you're getting conditioning in, but you're also just doing it in a fun way, competitive. You're with your teammates, you're laughing, joking. And I think doing it like as conditioning, maybe on a Saturday after a hard week of training is the way to go. Just cause like, it's a reward, one, but we're still getting our fitness in. And then also there's, like, the coaches are kind of monitoring, so it's not like you're playing at the wreck and you're playing against some random frat kid that's just, like, trying to hurt you because he wants to win a game that doesn't really mean anything. So, like, I think having teams play amongst each other is good because I think we all are, like, conscious of, like, the bigger picture and, like, injuries and stuff like that. But it, it definitely makes it, like, a cool environment, I think. And just playing sports in general, I'm going to touch on this a little bit more when we get into, like, just, like, The tennis journey and growing up as like a you know in a tennis family and stuff like that but I think it's very important for athletes to be exposed to other sports for sure yeah I agree
0: so how I mean you've been in college tennis for now a long time it looks like you look like a pretty young guy but um how's your time in college tennis been and what's some of the low lights and kind of the the highs
1: that you've uh, been involved with throughout your uh, playing and coaching career? Well, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing like college tennis for a tennis player. I mean, it's the most, uh, you know, tennis alone, as we can all relate is the, probably the most self-centered, egotistical, you know, individualistic sport. You know, you can't, you know, up until college, you're, you're not even allowed to, you can't talk to anyone. You know, you can't, only person you can talk to is yourself or the referee, and 95% of the time there's not even a referee around. So that's why you see a lot of us walking around talking to ourselves or our hand or our rackets. But I'd say low life as a player is probably when I got injured. That's tough. Anytime you come across an injury, and I sustained a you know pretty bad back injury my senior year, fourth year. So that was a tough pill to swallow. Um, you know high lifes are you know obviously you know beating your rival ASU, making it to the NCAA's, and as a players when we beat. Florida State at <clears throat> at uh, uh, Gainesville uh, to advance the NCAA's. That was probably our highlight as a, as a player, my fifth year and final year. Um, you know, low life as a as a coach. I'd say it's the same thing. You know, seeing any of your players you know sustain a season ending injury is pretty rough to see. Partially because you know of all the hard work that's gone into it, resources and time. and also you know. Psh- I've been there that's it sucks and at the same time though you can relate to them it's like I've been there, I've done it and you got to go through those lows and um, you know pick yourself up and get back on the pony and get going and then uh, you know high t- high life for for coaching I mean Arizona when we beat UCLA for the first time in program history was pretty big and then uh, Stanford and then um, you know making the NCAAs where we went to uh, Minnesota it was a little bit unfortunate first round there for us um, and then at LMU, Um, you know, first times, you know, beating Santa Barbara, beating Pepperdine for the first time in school history. And, uh, you know, the stuff that we've done there, highest ranking, you know, in the top 40, I don't remember specifically, but things like that are pretty good. And those are the things you look forward to, to do with, you know, your student athletes that you, that you coach and you recruit.
2: Going, honestly, talking about, uh, your career too, and your tennis upbringing and stuff like that. Um, a lot of people that are older tennis fans um, and tennis people know you and they know they know your dad first uh, because he was a great player himself. he was a professional player, and then obviously that was like an integral part of your life growing up in that environment. so what was kind of like that like I know you kind of told me about uh you know you putting nets up when you 're like eight years old and stuff like that, and I just think like me and Clark both have like tennis dads as well, you know where it 's like all right i 'm losing this first set i 'm down a break and Dad's in the car now, but uh, that's just kind of how it is. But how is that like for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, always anywhere in Southern California and bits and pieces of the, uh, you know, the country, even the world always, always knew my dad, uh, Hank. So, you know, he was a kind of a pioneer entrepreneur, definitely with his own business, Hank Lloyd's Orange County Tennis, you know, uh, has been a kind of the, you know, matriarch in Southern California with, with tennis both playing and coaching and teaching. And I was fortunate enough, you know, I, as I said earlier, I was brought up, I played, you know, three different sports. Was your dad your coach? He was. Yeah. And then we finally had, a, uh, you know, my mom got sick of uh, hearing us argue and going at it. Mm-hmm. So she, Same. you know, it was actually the tennis court at their retail spot in, in Tustin, California. She was helping some customers inside and we're yelling and screaming and cursing at each other outside. So she goes out and, you know, that's enough. That was it. And then, you know, got me another coach that we agreed upon after that. But yeah, you know, it's, it's been in the, in the blood and, you know, still to this day, you know, you go around, everyone always asks me how my dad is or an umpire or another coach. And so was fortunate enough to be exposed to that at a very early age, but also too, what he showed and what my parents showed was just the, the hard work. I mean, that guy works still to this day, he's turned 71, October 17th, the guy's teaching on the court six, seven days a week, running a club in Costa Mesa. The guy absolutely loves tennis. Like if I like love tennis, you know, at an eight, this guy's at like a 20, you know, I mean, he's just, it's ridiculous.
2: I've seen him like last last year, you know, I'd have like an individual with Tom and, and Hank would be around or something like that you know bag a slice into the net and get mad at him for missing a slice it's like dude yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. coaching now it's yeah, so I mean, funny though yeah
1: I mean he'd be he'd get in the car you go down a break he gets in his car drives around and then you know leaves and then comes back and thought that I lost and you know the guy's like you know laying down in a bush next to the next to the tournament you know I haven't seen him for an hour and a half
2: I want to I want to hear Clark's one of Clark's like funny uh maybe tennis upbringing stories like that like I just like I know for me, there's there's definitely a lot of stuff, but one of the, like, it just, a funny thing, you know, after taking an L, you just know that that walk back to the car is going to be nice. He's going to say goodbye to everyone, thank people, whatever. But as soon as that car door closes, it's fucking game over there. So, yeah, what I about think,
0: you? I think, um, I mean, my mom was an All American and my dad was, you know, uh, was a great college player and reached, you know, was 600 in the world in doubles. But for me, you know, um, my parents really weren't really involved in my tennis. You know, My dad would just kind of hang out, and he knew what was going on. and He was coaching a, a top 25, 30 program in Old Dominion for 20 years, and he would just kind of sit there on the sidelines. He probably w- wouldn't come to all my matches, but my mom knew you know, what was going on, and she would stay out of it. So the question I have for you is when you're looking at a recruit or just looking at yourself – how do you want your parents to be? Do you want your parents to be involved and in kind of, you know, twitching nervous every single point or do you want them to kind of just lay back and, you know, be comfortable because, you know, nowadays you see a lot of of these parents where their their kids are tight, you know? Their their kids look over their dad and they're they're tight as can be. Is that and what what do you think is kind of the balance in in helping
1: uh, you know, your kid uh, accomplish his goals. Now, when you're speaking kid, like it, like my own children or someone that I'm recruiting and what I'm seeing in the in the parents? R- recruiting parents. first. Recruit. Yeah. Recruiting. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's something to be said about the parents that's sitting there, maybe like falling out of their chair. First thing it shows me is that they care. You know, that's the first thing I see. And then, you know, you kind of see all right, what is, you know, where does it go from there? Is it, you know, if this so-and-so, if Alex takes a tough loss, you know, are they over there, you know, consoling him and saying it's going to be fine, building him up? Or are they, you know, ripping him a new one? And it's like, whoa, man, I probably wouldn't be saying that right now. So you kind of see what they're saying and how they're reacting. You know, are they the type two that's carrying the kid's bag for him? Are they carrying his water jug? Like I can't, I can't stand that. That's one of my pet peeves. If, you know, or they're doing his grips for him and, You know, you know, I'm using Alex because he's sitting next to me. But, you know, is he, you know, what's Alex doing? He better be doing something, you know, my dad, you know. So, I mean, I was taught a long time ago, you carry your own bag, you take care of your own stuff. So, you know, and they come to school, when we recruit a student athlete, we're recruiting the family. So the one rule I have, you know, I recruit your son, I'm recruiting your son. And then once, if you agree that this is the right place for you. You know, I'll talk to you about the birds and the bees, and you know how Alex is doing. But we will never talk about playing time. We will never talk about why you think your son should play. I know you think your son should play. Um, and to be honest, you know, I've been pretty fortunate. I haven't really had you know a parent that's called me. You know, they know where the where the the line in the sand is. You know, when they sign on the dotted line, and and that's it. And it's I think you get that through trust and communication and um, and having that having that understanding before their, their son decides to say yes. I
2: think, yeah, I I agree with you. And I kind of think that there's just not one right way to do it either. Cause there's going to be times when a parent needs to be supportive and there's going to be times when uh, a parent needs to give their kid a kick in the ass as well. And it's like balancing that. But I think there should be definitely like a separation where it's like, you know, father, mother first. And then, um, you know, I'm coming to your tennis matches and stuff like that. And I think as a, As a coach, I would imagine, at least from my perspective, I think you're honestly, I think you're recruiting the the player. I don't really care that much about the family. Sure, that's important. And that's important in the background of the player. But a big part of college, I think, is growing up and becoming your own man. Like if I'm like messing up or something, you know, I wouldn't want my coach like communicating to my parents just like a teacher would. You know what I mean? Like a teacher doesn't email your parents uh, unless you like sign on to that if you like fail a test. And so it's about taking accountability for yourself and like becoming a man and and all those type of different things. So I think as a that, as that coach, once it's like you're in college now, all right, your parents are at home and this is like a, a new thing. It's like going to Hogwarts.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've never reached out to a, a parent or a family member unless I thought there was something uh, maybe gravely wrong with that student as far as, you know, mental or their health. Anything Just, else, you know, you're dealing with adults once you come to college.
0: But, I mean, for the most part, if you're a – if you're recruiting an international kid, most of the time you don't have to deal with the parents. You know, if you have an American kid like Alex who's, you know – few hours away from from school you got to take a little bit you know deeper dive at the parents um and how you know how they are because you're going to see them more than the international parent at the matches um but what in terms of coaching philosophy and, and parents do you think that a parent should just kind of stay out of it completely in terms of you know their matches and just let the kid be and not hover around their court and you know say hey here you know he should hit the forehand to the cross court you know giving advice to you you think parents just need to realize that hey the coach is the coach and I'm the parent and I just need to sit back do you have do you still think that's a
1: problem in college tennis today? I mean, I'm I I I don't doubt that it isn't. I haven't, you know, I've I've listened to a parent that's maybe been like a little bit, you know, on a very high and wants to talk about the match. And I mean, you know, I'll, I'll throw them a bone and listen to what they have to say and and stuff because they are you know, they are so and so's parent. They are there, you know, they've showed up, they've initiated the fact that they're there and they care and they wanted to watch our dual match and so forth. So I mean, I'll sit there and listen and nod my head and then. You know, but I'm not gonna discuss it further than that. You know, it's it's up to, you know, Alex to tell his parents what they're working on and what the agreement is on the court and this is what I'm doing because this is what we've agreed to do. All the guys that come here, I'm gonna coach them based upon a meeting that we've had on how they see themselves being successful on the tennis court. And then on top of that, I'll then add on the things that uh, after weeks pass of where I think that we can make some changes in order for them to be successful, but they have to have ownership in their game and they have to believe in it and go from there. And, and they, we work on that each and every day. So when there are, cause you're going to hit those frustration points, you're going to hit those bumps. You're going to hit those lulls, where they're just like, "Eff it. I'm done. I don't want to do this. This is stupid. This isn't working. I'm losing. And they're like, Oh, hold on a sec here, man. Let's go back. This is what you wanted to do. I didn't tell you to play this way. This is how you wanted to play. You know, I'm here as an instrument to help you get to where you want to be. And I believe you can do that doing this. If you don't agree with that, well, then maybe let's find a different place for you. But this is what you agreed upon. Um, now, there's going to be a little tweak here or there. You know, I mean, we're not going to say, OK, if someone comes in, I want to be a strict certain it's like, Well, that may not work in this day and age. We might have to might have to rethink that. So to within a certain extent, you know, we have that discussion. But, you know, as far as parent goes, I mean, it's tough because in tennis, you know, you you guys have both lived it. Your, a lot of the time, your parents are the person that's with you on the road. They're paying for it and stuff. So they feel like they have a great deal of investment. And also, too, when you go to college, you know, you're not getting full rides. And there's a, a certain, you know, feeling that the parent has something to say. Now, like I said, fortunately enough, I haven't had to deal with said parent that feels that they have the right to come in and tell me how to coach. So, you know, I'm still... Uh, at least that's as a head coach I've had it as an assistant coach but I haven't had it as a head coach yet I mean yeah I think it also just depends on who it's
2: coming from you know if Hank Lloyd is watching Tom play at ASU and then wants to talk to his coach a little bit I think that's a little different or if you're talking to a a player who's their father or parent you know played tennis I think it's different too if you're talking to Bridget who is someone's mom and manages like a clothing store like it's just you know who doesn't know anything I wanted to As we get into you know your coaching style, which I I know because I I experience it every day and stuff like that. But before we get into that, I kind of want to ask you this question. And it's like from when you played uh to now, what are the differences you've seen in just college tennis, but also more specifically, like almost like on a societal point, on the people you deal with, even like the recruits you had five years ago to recruits you have now, like as time changes. Uh, people also change, generations are different. So compare, compare college tennis now to when you played on both, just kind of both those levels on, you know, personality and then just whatever you want in general.
1: I mean, as far as personality, I think the tennis players stayed pretty consistent due to the way that the sport is, it Was just as I said, you know, very individualistic, egotistical, self-centered. So you, you have that coming in. That's just how we are. That's just what the sport does. And, um, And then, um, you know, as far as so with that being the personality on the tennis court, I think, you know, has personalities changed? Yeah. Social media and being exposed to certain stuff over and over and over again. um, I think that's changed. That's changed. You know, the student in general and how you actually the form in which we communicate. A lot of the communication is done now. You know, text message. You don't ever pick up a phone and talk to anyone anymore. Uh, that's what, maybe five, 10% of the time, if that. So I think that plays a lot into it. Um, you know, when you have a, a, a recruit, um, you know, if you're talking about a gap of five, 10 years, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot with, you know, uh, a student sitting in front of you on a recruiting trip. What, it doesn't matter where they're from. They can be from Denmark, you know, it doesn't have to be in the United States. You know, a lot of the stuff, you know, are they looking you in the eye? Are they initiating conversation? Are they interested in what you're saying? You know, we've had recruits before where we have the itinerary all planned out, and I'll tell Alex, our assistant, like, look, I'm going to take him to breakfast, and if the breakfast is a complete disaster because the kid's on his phone or doing this and not engaged, I'm like, I'm out. I'm done for the rest of the day. I'm not dealing with this kid, and, you know, you can just toss him to the guys, give him some for Diem money, and uh, we'll, <laughs> you know, we'll move his flight up, and we'll, you know, cross this one off. So I think a lot a lot of that has to do with it, too, um, with, I think, you know, just having you know, this, this device, the phone in your hand is, is probably been the biggest difference in my opinion. I noticed it even to like
2: my brother's grade and he's a freshman in college. Now I'm a senior in college and just those so like, that's only a four or five year swing. And it's just so different the way kids are, I feel like. And in some ways it's definitely worse. Like I see ch- like kids with like, you know, problems with having conversational problems. Like he mentions looking someone in the eye or being on their phone and stuff like that. And then from another aspect, I see myself like, damn, like, you know, learning from that person because they're a little younger. They might know what's a little cooler, what's in and stuff like that. So they're like woke to things that maybe even I'm not yet. And so there's, it goes both ways. Um,
1: But I think it's very interesting for sure. And it's, I mean, and last thing I'll say on this, I mean, you talk about tennis players, but I have two children right now. And if you were to be 15 years ago and you were to have this pandemic that we're in right now, this remote learning wouldn't, wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have these kids at home on these devices. And it's just, it's, it's almost electrifying the problem that we have. I mean, my kids in kindergarten and fourth grade, and they're addicted to these, these iPads and these phones, you know, where this wouldn't even have been an option. And it would have been really interesting to see what society would have done without, without this form of uh, communication and stuff like that. No,
0: I think, I mean, I don't want to say it, but you know, society is kind of deteriorating because we're getting fatter. We're addicted to these phones. We're addicted to Snapchat. And, we, and then when you go and talk to a coach, you just shut the bed basically because you know you're nervous. You don't have that, um, that experience. You know, there's a lack of experience yeah. in in every way. And you know, it's like some people like breaking up with a girl. You know, you got to do it over text message or some shit like that you know. Yeah. So it's just it's there's the, you know the best form of communication is face to face, and now it's Zoom and. Um, FaceTime and all that. I, I don't know how effective that is. It's probably the second best form of communication. But you can't read someone's body language. You can't see if their toes are tapping. You can't see if they're nervous, you know, so it's it I mean it just looks like uh, like what's go, what's Alex and I's kids gonna what are they gonna you know, is they're gonna be addicted to iPhones and gonna be at two years old just glued to a you know iPad and there's gonna be yeah. just a like a lack of face to face communication.
1: We'll see. I, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm frightened right now for, yeah. you know, what, what are they, what are they going to call these coming out of this pandemic, you know, post-traumatic stress for these kids that are now having to go back into, you know, society and school. They're, they're gonna, there's, there's going to, I can't wait to see. Socialization for sure. Yeah. I can't wait to see what they're going to call that, the, you know, that illness.
2: I see it. It definitely is a frightening sight. I have little cousins when you see like a two-year-old open up an iPad and then find a game on it. That's yep. a little weird. But it's like, it's kind of about honestly becoming like a man and like that speed in manhood and adulthood and stuff. And it speaks to it. And I think like that is a problem with tennis players, just like there's a lot of homeschool tennis players. We've talked about this on the podcast before and just something like going to school aside from like, I think the best way to like honestly bring up a child, even if he's a tennis player or whatever it is, is you expose them to a variety of different sports. And then if they want to play tennis then they choose tennis, but Mm -hmm. they know what else is out there versus that's the only thing like you know just they're being pushed in and if that's if that's the way then you know they're doing it because they want to not for another reason and right now I feel like with this sport if you're not 100% committed and you don't love it then you're gonna only get so far you're gonna have some problems and going to that with the exposure to other sports it's also just exposure to people that's why I think high school and school is so important because dealing with a teacher you know You get a bad grade and going and talking to him in office hours. All right, how do we fix this? Uh, Even like scheming and trying to get your teacher to give you a better grade than you deserve. That's just part of like growing up and like everything like that. And you apply that to, you know, then dealing with a coach when you're in college. So then dealing with a job interviewer when you're in the workforce and, and so on. So I think like that's a huge thing for sure. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And then, I mean, transitioning into tennis, and I know we've talked about uh, you know, society and these players nowadays. And what do you think is kind of missing in tennis today? I know Alex and I have had this conversation. I think we had it on the first or second podcast. We kind of ridiculed, um, you know, Titsy Pass, all those guys that have been, you know, homeschooled and, you know, their lack of uh, branding, I guess. Branding might be the yeah. best word, you know, kind of, uh, you know, not attracting themselves to the common tennis fan. So what do you think in terms of college tennis, professional tennis, what do you think is one thing that's kind of, uh,
1: that's missing in in tennis today? Well, in college tennis, and I know why they did it when they, when they changed the scoring and to speed things up and to make a dual match, you know, three, three hours or less. Like I totally get that and how we used to be, uh, you know, a, uh, what, a level two sport. And, you know, the biggest comparison is when, you know, beach volleyball, you know, got rid of the side outs and they kind of, they kind of hopped us and we became a tier three sport, you know, as time kind of progressed. Um, so, I mean, I get that. I mean, that was a, that was a big deal in college having to play a back-to-back dual matches where you didn't stop matches. You played an eight game pro set. And, you know, back when our dads played, I mean, they're playing two out of three sets. Was there no clinch? Clinch? No. No, yeah. they didn't do they didn't do clinch clinch until I was a head coach here at LMU and wasn't until like my second year here so you know like 2014 they you know started playing around with the the no ad. So I mean that was a big change and it's now what's considered norm and you know a, a senior now doesn't know any different about it. And they you know they did it in doubles on the ATP tour and I get that and they did it there and it's you know it's about you know no one wants to go and watch a doubles match unless the Bryan brothers are playing. You know, no one wants to go watch the doubles match unless, you know, oh, Federer's playing with, you know, he's row. Great. I'll go watch that, you know. So, I mean, I get that. I get that. You know, I think, too, is, you know, what our sport is kind of yearning for is that, you know, that brashness, that personality. And, you know, we have such a unbelievable, you know. Force at the top that are just, you know, good dudes with Federer and Nadal and and stuff. And, you know, yeah, Djokovic will have his moments, but I mean, all in all, he's a pretty good, pretty good guy, gives back to the sport. And, you know, we're, we kind of, I think we're, you know, we were spoiled with those days where we had, you know, the illy Nastassys and the McEnroes and, you know, even like, you know, Agassi and, uh, you know, it was just, there was a different type of flavor coming up that it, it, it brought more people to that sport. And, We've been overshadowed by other sports, you know, whether it's MMA fighting or, you know, golf, you know, a lot more people choose to watch golf and and stuff. It's been marketing. They make more money. They've got, you know, they still got that guy named Tiger that's playing. And, you know, it's I think we're missing something like that. What do we do? How do we find that? I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see kind of how. How, how, the, how this progressed, this pandemic and COVID cert, certainly hasn't helped, but, you know, it did help that we were able to get those tournaments off at the U.S. Open. That was huge. So, you know, I think a guy like, you know, Kyrgios is, is big.
2: I, I agree. And I think the, a huge problem is that we don't have any American stars. That's definitely a huge problem, Um, foundational, because like, why am I going to watch just as a casual sports fan someone that's like not American if I'm not really that into tennis? I'm only going to do it if I'm like a tennis fan. So getting those like American stars back, just like we've been so spoiled in, in the United States, you know, previously with guys like even before, like the golden era, you could say you still had guys like Marty Fish, Blake, Roddick leading the way, and then before that, you know, you had Grand Slam champions, you had Sampras, Agassi, uh, even guys like Krychek, Courier, Michael Chang, there was just an endless list of just great, great players and personalities, I always think about that match that, uh, or even that whole tournament of Jimmy Connors making that comeback at the US Open, just the way he got the crowd going, is like, pointing at them, saying stuff like, you like that, like he's like, uh, what's his name, the QB for the, for the Vikings, um,
1: uh, right now? Kirk Cousins? Yeah,
2: Kirk Cousins, like that. You like that stuff, but also the ad point. I think that's good. So this is my perspective on it. I don't. I feel like you maybe don't like it, but I think it's good. I think we need to structurally change tennis on other levels to make it quicker and more exciting. But as a sports fan, what do you want to watch the most? You want to watch the uh, when the stakes are the most high. That's what's in like very fun the game seven, the last second shot with two minutes left and every other sport you can win by one point, you don't need to win by two. So I think why deprive the fans of bigger points because that's what sets the uh, I think that's what sets like the greatest from regular people or good tennis players and that's the ability to play the big points better. And so why not give the fans more of those high stakes points where you know both guys are sh- pants and it's like, whoever has the biggest really is going to kind of execute and win.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I get the whole, the scoring makes sense. Like I totally understand it. You know, I mean, I think if that's one of the thing, if we're comparing what's different back from when I played to now, it's, it's the longevity of a tennis match, you know, has the, has the game changed? Well, maybe the, the mental aspect of it has because a 30 15 point now is a lot different than a 30 15 point in 1999. You know, there's a, there's a, you're going to play Probably doubled the amount of tennis once you add in when you once you factor in the ads, you have that, and then you've got to get up. We used to play, we used to play five and a half hour dual matches, and that's then amazing. have to get up the next day and Dude, you know man. do it again against Stanford. You know, but isn't and, that
0: that's the kind of the fun in it too? You know, like for yourself playing in your you just finished two matches and you just won six four in the third four three against Stanford, whatever, and you're like, oh, I'm a little sore today. You know, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriend or go to the bar. And then, you know, and, and at 11 a.m., i got to be ready to go. So it's kind of the fun and, you know, I guess back then you guys were a little bit tougher, I think. And, and now we're, we're sure. kind of in a soft, soft age. So, you know, when someone looks at the schedule and goes, oh, shit, we have to play ninth, the October 19th, October 20th, October 21st, three dual matches in a row, they're like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And then, but I feel like, you know... The '90s and the in the early 2000s, people were embracing that. You know, like, oh, my body's gonna be beat up, but I'm gonna, you know, go out and try to beat UCLA on Saturday, then USC on Sunday, and then, you know, um, another school on on Sunday on Monday. So it's just like, you know, the the fact of playing and playing and competing, competing, and I think you know, there's a lack of um, competition installed in, in our, our bodies nowadays you know we're missing some well, yeah some
1: fire. i mean yeah and you used to used to, i mean if you had to you know you, you didn't get a dnf you dnf meant you meant you default or you quit you know now mm-hmm. it's just like oh match match is done all right cool man shake hands you got stall tactics you just like okay well yeah. you know i mean i probably would never have finished a match you know <clears throat> if i played nowadays um so you know it's it's just it's different it's just, it's different. It's good, but it's just different.
2: As a player, though, too, you kind of want that. Like, let's say my team is winning and stuff, and I'm going to lose, probably I'm down in my match, but my objective, even if my team is losing, honestly, my objective is just to say, as if I'm losing my match, to stay on the court as long as possible, you know, giving myself hope to maybe turn it around, but... If not, like why why take an L if you don't have to, you know? Stay out there as long as you can and
1: continue to fight for sure. But yeah, then my, my retort to that is is that then we're setting up this this generation to be used to not having to lose. Where if you walk on the court, you walk on the court, you want you want a result, you better walk off the court with the balls, or you go up and you shake his hand and say, I quit. But then it's going in the books as a result. It's going in as an L. So it's, it's like a... you look at it, it's like, wait, what happened to that mech? I I quit because we had another match the next day. I was cramping. Oh, okay. You know, where now it's like, oh, you can kind of look up, stall. You know, this guy's going to get it done. This guy's going to get it done. Call a call a trainer out, get a little two minutes, and then all of a sudden, boom. You know, where you don't, I think, and especially with a a sport like us, in tennis, you don't get results. A lot of guys get robbed those matches, you know, where you're you're actually beating a guy because of that no ad point. It's an equalizer. So like the 30, 15 points different, you get to Deuce and you're playing Isner. It's like, dude, this guy, you know, you're playing a, a big server. You're like, okay, I got to play one good point here. I got to play one good point. I don't have to play two. I got to play one and I break this guy, you know, and he's thinking the same thing. Where now it's like, they they can just, you can just, you know, DNF. It's a,
2: it's a Russian roulette sort of thing with the whole no ad point, which I, I like it as a returner. It's a good, it's a good thing. Just having to win one point for yeah. sure. Um, and then, as a server, though on the flip side of that, my mindset is like I'm I'm still the server. I should win this point, so it doesn't affect me that way when I'm serving, where I'm like thinking like this guy has to win one. Um, yeah,
0: I, um, with that whole
2: thing. Yeah, go for it, Clark.
0: When uh, so I was a um, in my freshman year of college, I went back to watch a high school tennis match, watch my you know former high school play, and they were playing in the state finals, and there was this kid that you know was a prominent. Uh, you know recruit he was going to a, a local division 1 college and he was playing a guy that on my my team my high school that was going to the naval academy and on paper the guy, other guy was supposed to win and so the school is up i think 4-1 or whatever you, no 3-1 and you're playing 3 or 4-1 and you're playing uh six singles first and the doubles comes after and the navy guy is that from my high school was up 9-6 the guy just the guy's playing in, the other guy that he's playing is playing his last high school tennis match yep. his hamstring hurts his hamstring hurts a little bit he calls and quits yep. just forfeits there and then goes and watches the watches the next match and um, ultimately they were up four two and then they go play doubles but you know what's the point of just forfeiting I think the competitive fire has really digressed. And, um, I'm a guy that loves, you know, loves competition, you know, the fire, the energy in in college tennis. And some people maybe say it's a stretch, but, you know, watching college tennis all my life and these internationals that have, they're pretty much playing for their scholarship almost. So we're missing that. And I hope, I hope, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen is that we can return to, you know, the days where there's some animosity, there's a rivalry between two teams. It's not, you know, love at the end of the day, you're going to go shake each other's hands and. And be alright so my question to you is you think that the game has kind of changed in the last 20 years in terms of hey we're going to hug it out at the end of the day and you're not going to go home and be like you know damn we just lost to UCLA I'm still really pissed I'm going to be pissed for the next year is it is it changed in terms of healing process
1: I think a little bit I think it comes from the culture of the program you know and, and what that is and that that comes from the top down the coaches and and what they instill in their guys, I mean, the, the losses better hurt, you know, why else are we getting up and practicing six days a week and maybe doing things that we don't really want to do, running hills, six forty AM workouts, you know, it's to get, it's to get the W. Um, and maybe it's a, it's, it's a generation flaw and it's stuff that we've talked about where, you know, maybe they've just gotten used to being okay with the L. And it's just part of it. You know, Uh, I I sure hope that's not the case. You know, I I get to put a shirt on. I get to be part of a team. It's cool. You know, I can post on social media that I'm part of the team. And at the end of the day, yeah, we're going to go out and hug it out. And if I go have beers with the team that just kicked my butt, you know, I hope that's not the case. But I think I think it comes from the from the team and the culture of the program, um, whether that's, you know, tennis, basketball, football. I mean, the the L's the L's should hurt.
2: Yeah, I'm going to put it. I'm going to narrow it down to one word and or two words I guess. Participation trophy. That's kind of like what that whole mindset is. It's like particip- participation trophy mindset, culture, stuff like that. Like I love the the rivalries, I love the hate. I love my favorite thing in the world about college tennis is and what I think is so unique is just being on a court on six courts down the row side by side competing with your like brothers you know like fighting it out with them they're going through I look over to my right and I see my uh my teammate going through the exact same thing as I am like we're in that together and we're just battling it's like being in war like kind of like you're on the front lines or you're in the trenches and and your brothers are next to you and so I think that's what's that's what's sick about it I know as far as like pulling out and things like that and all that like Tom Stance is very being his you know um I guess player um it's very, it's very similar to mine where it's like, if you go on the court, it's to compete. You know If there's a nagging injury or something like that before, it's like, all right, are we good enough to play this match? If we're not good enough, then let's, all right, let's go get treatment and we'll recover and we'll get ready for the next one. But if, if we're playing that match, then there's no excuses. You're finishing that match and you're going to compete on the court. Yeah. You got to
0: go out and you got to compete. Yeah. In terms of what Alex is, is talking about and, and just college tennis, I know we've talked about the fire and all that. Do you do you think college tennis gets enough publicity at the end of the day? And what is what? How do we kind of help it grow and maybe even monetize college tennis so we can? I don't want to use these three words, but save college tennis at the end of the day because we see yeah. so many programs getting cut now nowadays.
1: Yeah, I mean does it get the enough, you know, the right publicity? Probably not. You know, I'm a bit biased being, you know, a tennis player and coach, but I mean, like I've said, you know, we've been, we've been jumped in the ranks. I, you know, I don't, I think we're still at a, a considered a tier three sport, you know, we, we haven't hit our stride. I think, you know, um, you know, certain federations have done a great job, you know, you know, London, the, the LTA and um, even, you know, Serbia, the some, some countries are really doing a really good job and not to knock the USTA or anything, but, you know, we've got a pretty big opportunity here uh, to do something and yeah, we've, we've struggled, we've struggled uh, college. is struggling, you know, in the during this pandemic, it's been the most um, dropped sport of any other sport since it started with the, the most recent Fresno state uh, dropping their program. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do in the end of the day? We're, we're a non-revenue sport. We're non-revenue sport, very few programs, you know, charge for the turnstile coming through with, with fans. Um, in certain areas, it's tough to get fans, even in a, in a city like Los Angeles. There's so many things to do in L.A., you know, even programs with, you know, Poly Pavilion struggles to fill their, fill their facility up just because of the, you know, the nature of where we are. So, I mean, what can you do? I, we've got to have a better, better idea and better, better funding in the grassroots. We've got to get more kids involved. We got to get more people involved. We got to do a better job at the parks and rec. And where does that come from? That comes from the, the association, the USTA or ITA and whatever, and, 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 funding, uh, you know, those programs and, and starting and starting from there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a movement is what it is. And, you know, I think we can all do a better job in promoting our sport, but at the end of the day, you know, what do you see on TV? What's more on TV? You know, we got to start with, we got to start with that. You know, if, you know, if, if LeBron or, you know, was playing tennis, it would be pretty interesting.
2: That's, yeah, that's why 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 I go to the things like more American tennis players, because I think non tennis fans used to watch tennis because of those personalities like Agassi. And uh, when you I don't know, when you talk about those things also just on a on a fundamental basis when you're growing up and stuff, we, we all played with regular tennis balls. Now they're going to the red dot stuff. And that's totally different in the way people are developed and also just like a mindset thing like I think red dot is low key a little bit like uh, participation award type stuff and the way people market themselves but I do really want to live like as tennis players we love tennis and we also want to grow the game and make it better and I want to definitely live in a world where number four player on the tennis team is getting as many girls as like the backup quarterback you know.
1: I I think that's still possible. I think it's possible. (laughs) I think that's, I think that's still possible.
2: I don't, I don't know. Just, just talking about all that stuff and like it's coverage on TV, but with non-revenue sports, like we're never going to be a revenue sport, but there's only about two or three that are. It's normally basketball and football and then maybe, maybe baseball, but most, most of the baseball ones aren't really bringing any dough anyway. Uh, so that's why it's got to just be on, you know, people's minds by having like a figure to look at, uh, you know, like an American tennis player or something of that nature. Otherwise, I don't, you know, we're never going to be a revenue sport. Well, and it's tough too
1: at a professional level, a professional level. If you're top twelve hundred, if you're the if you're the if you're one out of twelve hundred in your sport, how many sports where if you're one out, if you're one in twelve hundred, do you make less than one hundred thousand dollars? Only tennis. Not a lot. If you're, if you're, if you're the, if you're one of twelve hundred of the top football players and or soccer players in the world, you're making a million dollars a year easily. Mm -hmm. Minimum. You're losing money.
0: If you're three fifty in the world, you're losing money nowadays.
1: Correct. You're. I think you clear maybe you know maybe twenty eight thousand dollars, and then you spent triple that just to just to travel. So I mean, there's a flaw at the top. You know, and hopefully, you know the the, the pros and the and the federations are advocating that we got to have you got to have more prize money and points at the lower levels. Um, But it's tough. It's tough. There's yeah. There's a lot of ways to do it.
0: Do you think that? um, I know this debate has been it's kind of circling around California with Newsom right now. Do you think it's appropriate to pay college athletes, or are you not in favor of that?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm kind of on the fence with that because of not, not because of my job, but I, I don't know what to think with that because it's tough. Cause then what do you, okay. If you pay the student athlete, then they've got to pay taxes. Does the, how many people are really actually going to make the big bucks when, if you my, pay your student athletes? My, my
0: theory is that Hey, you're paying. So, who's the top quarterback right now? Mac Jones at Alabama. You're paying sure. him, and now look at the women's golf. The last player on the women's golf team. What's Title Nine going to say about hey, Mac's making a hundred thousand dollars a year because he's the quarterback and he's slinging around, and then you got the third string quarterback, you know? So, yep. what do you have to kind of? equally pay Mac and then the women's golf I mean what's what's the negotiations there if you're just going to let Mac make a hundred thousand dollars and then everyone else is going to make maybe two grand you know if you're not if you're not one of those one of those top
1: players well if you're your own if you're your own employee and you can pay I mean you're probably going to have an. you can have an agent and it's up to the agent to get you that deal or with that you know used car sales you know down the street or selling Toyo tires I mean that's that's where it gets a little squirrely, you know? You got people that are TikTok, you know, pros and you know whatever D3, you know, number 5 girl on whatever team, it could be a legend in TikTok and could clear $60,000 that way. You know, should that girl get it? Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know? She's done a good job doing that. Good for her. You know, I just think if if you're talking about pay, paying the top athletes in college of what percent would actually make a profit after you, because then, I mean, I haven't kept up with it that much, but then you factor in their scholarship, you know, so you got to, you got to pay taxes on your scholarship. I I mean, you're going to have to be paying these kids an awful lot of money.
2: Well, I think it's just likeness. I think that's what it needs to be. Like if he's getting a bunch of Jersey sales and he should get a portion of that, because it's not like you're going to pay somebody a salary based off of how they perform, because that just, it doesn't work that way. And what I would say to what you're what you were saying about the example with the football player and maybe the female golfer, it's like the one thing is like that football player is going to get paid no matter what. If he's going to get you know if it's legal and everything like that, and uh, the NCAA approves of it, he'll get that hundred grand. Um, and if it's not legal, like it is now, like he's still going to get that hundred grand. Trust me. So that's why. It's just like I think maybe making it more so legal is just a better way to make it safe because then, uh, you know, then they can navigate it and there's regulation to it and people know it's going on and stuff. It's almost like drugs really, like making something illegal to legal.
1: I mean if I put my coach's hat on and one of my players came to me, I would probably be, take the side of, you know what, this is probably bad because then they're going to be more, more apt to probably focus on that and what the paycheck's going to be than trying to figure out how to hit a low volley. You know, so I would I'd probably if I had to if I had to weigh if I had to weigh in on it re- and, you know, bet my house on it, um, I would probably say, you know, to not not pay student athletes just for the simple fact for the, you know, for the coaching staffs. Yeah.
2: I, yeah, I think it's before, though, like and it's I don't think we'll ever run into a problem like that with tennis. But for football, it's like, all right, pay, I'll give you 50 grand if you come to my school. That's yeah. what it is. And that's going to ha- That that happens. Yeah. Um, people don't want to talk about it but uh, it's you know it definitely has happened and continues to happen there's all these violations and it happens in those revenue sports so I don't know it's obviously it's definitely a debate it's it's a touchy subject but I think they're going to get the money regardless it's just not under the table anymore yeah
1: that could be the case too as well
2: what um as we get into a bit of like your coaching style and things like that I kind of want to touch on just like influences you have i know that you're um not your father but your coaching college was a huge influence on you and how how has that shaped you as a coach and things that you've taken and learned and um you know been mentored into what you are now
1: yeah coach Wright, coach bill Wright, rest his soul um yeah he was a big deal he was a big part of me deciding to go there and it's just i saw i actually saw a lot of my a lot of my dad and him uh, and a lot of the other coaches that I had in him, the guy was a, you know, been around tennis for forever. And he was just, he was the type of guy that you just, you felt comfortable telling him just about anything. Uh, and also, uh, you know, you wanted to win for him. You wanted, you know, you wanted to go out and leave it all out on the court and fight and compete for for him and 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 the Cats. So, I mean, that was... That was a selling point, you know, no offense to any of the other coaches that recruited me or that I went on the trips with. But you just felt that connection, you know, with that, you know, he always had the guys over for dinners and the women's team over for dinners and stuff. And, you know, you just it felt like it felt like home is what it did. It felt like home and it it felt good. And, uh, you know, he gave he gave us, you know, a lot of line and latitude where, you know, he allowed us to fail and we failed a lot. And you know when it came down to it, you know in the end, you, know, you make an NCAA is a tough match. You know you looked over. We talked about earlier looking over and seeing a parent jitty. I mean, he was pretty calm and cool. He's pretty much seen everything under the rainbow, and you, you felt you felt a sort of calmness too. So try to embody that and project that with with the guys that I have now and the team and stuff. So it was a it was a big part.
0: Is um. Do you kind of take – what things do you take away from your dad and from, from other coaches? I know there's a level of, like, imitation to inspiration where you draw things from your experiences in the past and then, you know, you apply them to your coaching philosophy. So what do you do with Alex nowadays that have, that's really – you can think back to your time at Arizona or your, or your kind of – your junior tennis uh, journey that you've kind of applied to, to Alex and his teammates?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, grew up. I mean, you didn't. There was no days off. You know, you practice. You know, I don't. I never went on a vacation until, gosh, maybe I was twenty six, where I didn't have my racket with me wow. on the trip. So See, I mean, I that mean, was instilled. We're right. Society nowadays is soft. I mean, you can. Admit I mean, that. like. I mean, we would go our family vacation. We didn't go skiing. We didn't go water skiing. We didn't go to the river. We went to Catalina, and Catalina has tennis courts. Brought your rackets.
2: That that drove my mom crazy. We would do the same thing. Yeah,
1: I mean, my mom, too. I mean, she was, you know, never played or anything like that, but she got it and, you know, go over there. And I got to listen to my dad, you know. Even in college, I brought my tennis rackets. I've come home from college in the summer, you can your tennis rackets. So I think finally, I can't remember the exact trip that it happened, but so that was instilled. You know, these guys, you know, I'm not feeling good today or I'm tired. And it's like, oh God, all right. Well, then why are you here? Um, figure it out because you're losing an opportunity today to get better and make your teammates better. So, you know, I've had to, I've, I've calmed down in a bit with that from my younger days now that I've been doing it for, you know, 15 plus years. But that was instilled, you know, you, I mean, the guy is, like I said earlier, the guy's still working seven days a week, and the guy's 71 years old. So um, that was a big deal, and that was how those guys were, you know, whether it was him or my my best friend's uh, dad, Phil Dent, or, you know, Sid Ball, uh, these guys that I grew up around, they just, they lived it. They lived it. And you, um,
0: when you highlighted in the introduction, you were a big part of Taylor Dent's career. Was there any... What was the schedule like with with Taylor and the days off, the tournaments? You know, nowadays these guys take three weeks off and they just go relax. You know, there's – I mean, Nadal – I think Nadal said he was – they had this Instagram live, him and Federer. And he said that he hadn't picked up – didn't pick up a tennis racket in like five months, something crazy like that. I don't know the exact timeline, but I remember he's like, I haven't picked up a tennis racket since the final when I lost in the final whenever. So, um, what do you think about kind of the new, the changing of the guard in tennis and some of these guys taking two, three, four weeks off?
1: Well, first let me set the record straight that, you know, I had very little to do with Taylor Dent being the tennis player that he was. If anything, we were, you know, we were best friends and if anything, I was, uh, you know, a sounding board, uh, a familiar face on the road and we worked very well together um, but you know, as far as Nadal or these guys today that are able to do that, I mean, that guy's that guy's Nadal. You know, um, you know, as far as you know, if I you know take it down, you know, these other guys that are aspiring to be Nadal, I mean, or Fed or whatever, it's like those guys get to do that because they are who they are. You know, they have they get every they can have every excuse in the book as far as I'm concerned. You know, with what we're witnessing with these three guys being Djokovic, Nadal, and Fed, it's just incredible. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, it's with our guys here, you know, it drives me the, my, my, my least favorite time of the year in college is when these guys finish finals in the winter and I don't see them. And then we got to come back in January and we got to play what, what is our season in the spring. And hearing these guys, oh, I took a couple, you know, a week and week and a half off. It's like, you did what? You know, that you just cost cost us two weeks, you know, right there. It's going to take at least that to get you back in your form. And these guys, Nadal Fed, they're surrounded by this with physios. I mean, these guys are still training and working out. 24-7. I mean, they're still, you know, eating right and sleeping and, you know, doing these things where, I mean, they're going to be, you know, not maybe back at where they were when they left, but they know it down to a T what they need to do at this point in their career. So, um, you know, that's, that's that. But I mean, I think, you know, it's the times have changed this little bit. I mean, these guys are able to kind of at that level, you know, you can pick and choose your tournaments and and what you're doing. And because they know, they know what they're going to be capable of. And I think they'll, those guys will all retire once they aren't able to actually do that anymore. And the fact that they're still able to do it just shows that they're, they're doing something right. And I think all everyone else is trying to figure out what that is. And everyone's got a different uh, potion or modality that they need to find. And I think we have—we're seeing that with these these you know these guys that are coming up, whether it's Tistipas or you know uh, Dimitrov, who's still trying to figure it out. I mean, it's 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 interesting for me, from a tennis fan, coach, and player, to see these guys that are incredible tennis players, and you got these three that are just still dominating the game, and they're my age, close to my age, which is incredible.
2: It, I think it is for sure incredible. Um, and there's there's not one right ugh, not one right way to do things. They all have different approaches and stuff but Federer at one point in his life was playing 30, 35 tournaments a year like he's like almost you know 40 so he's not going to do that anymore. but there are some guys that need to play a heavier schedule like Davidenko and that just I think that just changes based off of where where you're at. but as, as a tennis player, I think the guys that I look up to the most, I look up to those idols like Nadal, Djokovic, and uh, Federer, but I think it's looking at guys like Taylor Dent, guys that are just like us, you know, someone, you know, Tom grew up with Taylor, played all the same tournaments, things like that, and it's just like those are the guys that, you know, made a career because really like a dude like Nadal or Federer, they're they're anomalies. But that's why you respect almost the dudes that are like 25 to even like 200 in the world because like they're no different than, than you are. They just uh, They just did the work, and so it's admirable that they've made like – a career out of that for sure because
1: not everybody's like just special like that like an adult yeah i mean it's 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 you know and taylor was one of those guys too i mean he was one of the last you know i think he was at the tail end of henman's career the last certain volleyers i mean he had to change his game in order to keep up with being able to play in that r- rigorous schedule and in the end you know the end of his demise was that was that horrible back injury and then when he made his comeback he wasn't a traditional serve and volley. The 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 surface had changed so much and it had gotten so slow that it was it was unreasonable to think that you could serve and volley at that level um, and be successful with how good these guys were um, from the baseline.
2: What uh, inspired you to go into college coaching? You've been on both sides, coaching on the pro tour. You've coached in college. You've been an assistant. You've been a head coach. Um, what got you into it? And uh, why do you why do you think you do what you do versus? Uh,
1: being a, a private coach or coaching on tour or whatever. Well, I was – so when I, when I graduated from college, I was actually – I had my best my best year, my fifth year when I came back after my injury. And then I sustained a, a weird growing injury our first Pac-12 weekend and then played out the career. And then I was rehabbing back at home. I remember I was at one of my, my, my parents' tennis shop in Tustin, California, stringing a racket. And I have – you know what? I'm going to try getting the job. So I had an interview set up with Adidas and Nike. And then I get a phone call and it's, it's Taylor Dent's dad, Phil, Phil, what's going on? He goes, Hey, uh, you know, Taylor's USTA coach is having a second kid. He's got to leave. You know, would you have any interest in flying to Madrid? I said, sure. When? He's like tomorrow. So I said, okay, sure. So, uh, his agent called me up, set up the flight and everything. And then, you know, uh, long story short, you know, I ended up being with Taylor for a year and a half. And while I was with Taylor, we were at the Bolitary Academy. We moved there both. Orange County guys and we moved to Florida and we're at the academy and we're working out. I'm doing all the same workouts that Taylor's doing. I remember being in the gym specifically and thinking how cool it was to see these other, you know, academy kids in Bolitaries and then you had, you know, you know, the the football players there and you had every type of thing and I remember thinking this feels like a college again. This I, I kinda miss this because, you know, we're traveling thirty six weeks out of the year, you know, we're never home and I'm like, This is this is I really enjoyed this. And then it's like I made that thought in my head like, it'd be cool to get back in the college coaching. and then Taylor sustained his, his, his injury in his back and then I got the, the call from uh, Tad, who was the head coach at Arizona at that time and asked if I'd interested to come back as the assistant. And that was in 2006, I believe, and ever since it's just been you know there's no time like college tennis in a, in a, in a tennis career unless you're playing Davis Cup, but you're only doing that for a couple weeks a year. And it's it's just you can't you can't replicate what we're what we're privileged and I'm able to do for a living here. It's just it's 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 really cool. It's kind of um, you know you see so many high
0: school players that are good and you know they're in between Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, and they just opt to go. Hey, I'm just going to go to the bigger school and I'm just going to study. You know, so it's it's sad whenever I see that. You know, because, you know, I've had such an incredible college tennis career, uh, you know, I lost in two conference championships, never really got at the NCA's, but, um, you know, luckily the NCAA is, is giving a year of eligibility back, so that's something to consider for all these seniors. But what's your advice to people that are seeking college coaching positions and kind of the grind of, hey, you know, you're not going to just make it. Right, right away, you're not going to be like Damed Roditi, who just gets a phone call from a booster and becomes the TCU men's tennis coach because he was, you know, one of the top players at TCU and was a, you know, very good coach on the ATP tour. What, um, what's kind of your, your advice to a, a guy that might not be uh, the best player that he was at that specific college, or, you know, the most Sought of what? What's the guy, What's the advice to the guy that just wants to grind it out and really enjoys uh, the the competition and the fire of you know of helping student athletes succeed in, in the classroom and also on the tennis court.
1: I mean, first and foremost, you're you're a ser- you're a servant of the student athletes. You've got to put you know that's it's your life. You know, it's twenty four seven. It's you know, phone call at three a.m. with someone in in Europe. It's it's everything. It's a lifestyle. You know, if you truly want to make a difference and be part of it, then um, you've got to be a servant to the student athletes in the university in which you work for. And, you know, and you've got to be a, a yes man and a, a supportive uh, proponent to the, the the head coach or coaches that you're that you're working for and that you're uh, representing. Um, and like you just said, you've got to be ready to grind. you got to be ready to grind and, you know, go do a couple hours with the team, four hours with the team, you know, strength and conditioning, maybe at certain schools, you're running that strength and conditioning session, you know, and then, you know, you're making ends meet. You've, if you've got a wife or a kid or, if, you know, if you're solo, you got to go grind out at the local club and teach some lessons and you got to be ready to do those things. Um, you know, if you're looking to get in and you're maybe in your last year, you can get a master's program, you know, that volunteer position is, is pretty crucial. That's kind of your ticket in where you get that year of experience um, that you can put on the resume, even though it is only a year. But, I mean, that could uh, that could work, kind of move mountains for you if you're with the, right, with the right program and the right position comes open.
2: That's very cool. I think, yeah, I feel like it's definitely about getting in there early. I think people that go from assistant or volunteer assistant then to assistant, it's like paying your dues for sure. Absolutely. And then some people are luckier and stuff like that. Um, is there something that you would say – uh brought you to LMU. Um what speak on that a little bit because obviously I you know I left a program just like you left a program to come here. Mm-hmm. What what was attractive about it to you?
1: Well it was I was at a time where I was like, you know what, I've uh I loved Tucson, I loved Arizona. My wife and I we were living there. We were, you know, a rarity where you don't you don't, you know come from a different state to go to the university of Arizona and then actually remain there. It's usually one of those schools where you, you know, you you, alums don't usually hang around there unless you're from Tucson. So, you know, I felt like we kind of, I, we kind of outgrew Tucson and, you know, my role there and it was like, all right, let's, it's time to look for a a head job. So there was a couple different openings that year and it just so happened LMU was the one that um, offered first and it was kind of Uh, you know, blind luck because my, my mother was an alum from here and so was my grandfather. And uh, it was always the goal, um, you know, for my wife being, even though we met in college, we're both from Southern California. So it was like, we gotta, we gotta do this and try to figure out a way to make this work, even though it's LA um, and super expensive, but it was an opportunity and, you know, definitely a change in lifestyle going from assistant to head, you know, you're in charge of everything. And There's going to be more responsibility on the, you know, on my wife as far as where I might have to leave for two weeks and go over to, you know, certain tournament and so forth where, you know, I'd have a little bit more latitude as an assistant. You know, you're not, you know, you're not the head, the head, head guy, not making as much money, you know, but um, so it was kind of just the stars aligned. So my mom likes to say she went and she went to church and that's what, what it was. But, you know, I think, (laughs) I think it was a few things
0: what has what have you enjoyed the most about LMU in your kind of 8-year run so far there what's what's some of the, the highlights that you look at just the
1: the process of building the program you know it's really been a privilege and fun uh you know what we've done uh for you know for LMU you know when i first got here you know it was uh you know no offense to the previous coaches or before me you know it's it's a it, it's been a tough spot you know you got you're right here within the juggernaut at Pepperdine that's dominated the conference for years and then USD was right there you know as i said you know i was a naive young kid from southern california i wasn't going to look at lmu um, being one of the top guys from socal was never never even a thought so you know i Uh, I wanted the challenge, uh, when I set foot on campus the first time and, you know, from my interview and I saw how beautiful the campus was, the location I had never been before. And I have a grandfather and a mother that's an alum. Um, and I went, first thing I did is I found the tennis courts and I said, hallelujah, we got six courts, a scoreboard, you know, there's grass on the field. Let's play. This is, this is, we can do something with this. And then, um, so I, I've just enjoyed it from the simple fact I was super, um, lucky to inherit just a great group of guys that I inherited in, in 2013, those, those guys were huge and they were a huge part of the building block of the recruits that we brought in and what we were able to do. And it's been a process and we're nowhere near done, but we've done some great things in the previous seven and a half years. And we're looking to build on that with the, the crew that we have now with, uh, you know, Alex being part of that and the, and, and the type of culture that we have. So it's been fun. That's just the whole process.
2: Yeah, I definitely think uh, Coach is – he's totally transcended the program and just sports in general here at LMU um, and brought in the right people to create a good culture because that's what it is. You know, as a coach, you're not the one striking balls out there, but uh, it's putting the pieces together. Maybe some of those pieces aren't the highest-ranked dude, but it fits culture-wise, and, you know, as a coach, like, you can develop that guy, and, like, that's – it's like the Spurs kind of in the sense where it's like – it's you know you don't put a team of superstars together if you can get superstars together that's great but you got to make sure that that culture fits and here we have something where what i'm a part of i think is really cool because uh historically this has hasn't been a good program but since tom took over it's just making strides every single year so to try and accomplish uh and have that opportunity to accomplish new goals i think is something that's like super super cool um and it's definitely he's sparked it all eight years ago um, going, going into some of, um, as we get to the end here and stuff like that, uh, talk to me, what the f is going on with our
1: Chargers? Oof. It's atypical, isn't it? Atypical. The, the one, uh, you know, what, the gleaming light is uh, Mr. Bosa and, and Herbert. So I'm stoked that we, we got those guys for the future. We got a week off this last week and we've got what, Jacksonville? This week, right? So they're two teams, one and five. We've got to take the dub this week. But if you're a Chargers fan, this is pretty much how things have always been. You know, I mean, we can never find a kicker. We can never quite, you know, for whatever reason, it's always something. But, you know, what are you going to do?
0: What about that Tua news? You know, that's really shocking to have a three-game running streak and then you got a rookie quarterback. There's just some weird storylines right now in
1: sports. I know. I just saw that this morning. I, you know, I didn't even realize that. And it's like, hold, wait, hold on a sec. They're taking, they're taking Harvard out, and they're putting them in. It's like this guy's been killing it. And yeah. they interviewed the coach. And so I'm real interested to see how this is going to pan. I'll probably be watching that game on the Red Zone channel. Fitzmagic is. I love Fitzmagic. That's why I mean. I think in terms that guy's of, so good.
0: In terms of TV and in terms of ratings, you know, is Fitzpatrick gonna yep. do more, or is this young guy from Alabama who's you know, been a star, and can, and when it comes down to the end of the day, Alex, we've talked to, Tua can, has a personality, he can speak with the media, and fans like him, you know? And that's what's hurting tennis today, is we don't have yeah. any of those Tua guys from, great story, makes you-, you know, comes in, in a, you know, in the national championship and balls out. It's just, that's what we're missing in tennis, and that's why football, basketball, baseball, all those, you know, I like these the tier that you've that you've been using throughout this hour and a half, is that the, the tier sports and that's what's kind of hurting us.
2: Yeah, it just it, I don't know for me though it just makes it uh, it's markability too. Look at a dude like Taylor Fritz, uh, who's one of my friends, like. That guy has sponsorships with a variety of companies, such as Rolex, stuff like that. Or Agassi versus Sampras. Sampras had a better career, but Agassi made more money because he was more marketable. And that comes from stuff like social situations and uh, going to normal school. Like I think the reason a lot of these guys are way more relatable and cool is because they went to high school. Like all those sports that you named that we're talking about. Like you have to go to high school to go to college, and then you also have to go to college to get drafted. So, just the the route I think is way better, and that's what it results in. Um, no, no
0: basketball player, top basketball player is going to go be homeschooled. You know, a top tennis player is homeschooled in high school because right. high school tennis is a joke.
1: Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So, so
2: as we yeah. uh, as we wrap up here, um, we can go one each here, Clark. Let's get into some of the rapid pace questions.
0: These Unless are, you want to ask anything the, else
2: before we get into here,
0: this is kind of the uh, the first episode we've done it. You know, we're we're fairly new podcast, but uh, you know, we didn't we were uh, fairly new with the guy, and we didn't you know have everything tested out. We wanted to do a little of a double or nothing, uh, get to know your your guests a little better. So uh, we're gonna go with favorite tennis player ever,
2: Jim Courier. Interesting. Wow, favorite athlete.
1: Jim Courier's a baller. Favorite athlete? Ooh, God, that's a tough one. How about top five? Well, oh, top five. Tiger's in there. Uh, Pete Sampras. Hold uh, on, you can't serve like Pete. Uh, you got to go with Kobe. MJ. And God, who we rounded it out? Did I say more? Oh,
2: man, it's a tough one. We got MJ, we got Kobe, we got
1: Sampras. Is uh, the other one? I didn't say Tiger. I you said Tiger, Tiger. yeah. Tiger. Uh, Muhammad Ali. I love it. Wow. Favorite team? Favorite team, Lakers. Favorite beverage? Favorite. I, Stone IPA. I like it. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. It's a tie. Big Lebowski and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I haven't seen Fade. Is, is it funny? You're missing out, man. It's, uh, who's in it? Johnny Depp, Benicio oh, Del Toro. When did that 100. come out? When did it? God, like 92? Alex, we're 92? too, we're too, we're too, we're too yeah, young. I don't even. I mean, it's you guys, you know, Hunter S. Thompson.
2: You the, didn't even the, the have peaches on your nuts H-S- yet.
1: Yeah. HST. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it Hunter out. Hunter S. Thompson. Gonzo Journalism. Favorite coach. Top,
2: I want this one. Top five coaches. Top five ever. coaches Could ever. Be any sport, but in, that has inspired you
1: that you've liked. I okay. think this is a great one. In no particular order, uh, Coach Wright, my coach, Bill Wright, uh, Phil Jackson. I knew that was coming. Um, <laughs> going, uh, Joe Madden. Good. Uh, Pat Riley. Yeah. Uh, number five. Number
2: five coach. Let me just throw two out for you: Belichick or Popovich.
1: I love, I, love I love pop. I love too. pop too. God, the Spurs. Yeah, pop's great. Uh, God, five. What if I said Steve Kerr? <laughs> little, little. Are you friends with him? Not See, sure. I don't. I'm I never met. I don't.
0: I don't consider him as a coach. Yeah. I. I mean, I do, but I mean, the players that he had from the start, he just had a, a winning franchise. Yeah. You know, he was he was a winner before he even stepped on the bench. That's true. Now, That's if you true. weren't, if you weren't
1: coaching, what would you do? If I wasn't, co- I'd probably be, I I'd, I'd probably would have been doing what I was doing when I got the phone call, would have been in working with a, uh, you know, like a Nike or Adidas started off low and worked my way up. That was kind of the plan. I had a business degree, so I'd, I'd be in some way or another with, with a company like that.
2: Uh,
1: dead or dead or old, alive.
0: yeah, Alex, you go with this one.
2: Uh, dead or Alive, if you could have dinner or go get drinks with five people, who would they be? Jim Carrey. Um,
1: Jim Morrison. Kurt Cobain. I love Kurt Cobain. Uh, MLK. That's a good one. Um, God. I always struggle with number five on this. It tweaks the brain. Dead or alive, man, that's rough.
0: See, we um, told you these questions weren't going to be easy. You know, it was going to be a challenging job when you got on this podcast. We weren't going to make it easy yeah, for you. This
1: is, this is good. My, my whoop strain just went up. I think they're – yeah,
2: speaking about that whoop strain, shout out to whoop. But um, Coach bought us all these bracelets, uh, which are really good for everything. You know, they see your heart rate, how much you need to recover, all that stuff. But there's also some uh, – some challenges that we face with them, like my, the other day when I had my heart rate spike up at 2 a.m.,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I accidentally poked around in the wrong places. I was just figuring out the whoop dashboard for the first time. I figured out real quickly where I need to draw the line on where coach pokes around. Yeah, so, yeah. got to do what you got to do to sleep sometimes. Right, right, yeah. But number five, I said it before, we'll go Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, for sure, rounding out the top five. Dead or alive
2: okay and I already I already know his dream job it's uh it's coaching me if I turn pro just kidding <laughs> I'll ask that dream job I think
1: I'm at it that's good I think I'm here I think we, we win some tennis matches and I I don't mind staying here in Westchester for the, my, the next 40 years or however long they keep me on this planet but I wouldn't mind it
2: we like it yeah I mean we keep you keep doing what you're doing I think you're gonna be here a long long time that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, it was a Clark, pleasure, you to have you. Else? pleasure to have you on this podcast. You know, it's, it's been nice meeting you in this hour and a half that we've kind of, uh, just talked and, and talked about different sports. And, uh, Alex kind of gave me the, the rundown before it. I didn't know you'd be this intriguing of a character. So it was a, it was a pleasure <laughs> to, know. uh, to meet you and, uh, well, Alex knows I'm going to be in L.A. soon, so I, I'm looking forward to uh, coming down to LMU with my, with my dad.
2: Yeah, hopefully you come during a match or something.
0: Well, it's going to be December to January, so when do you guys start the,
1: the tennis season? You, February or is that? Uh, uh, we have a match, I think, late January. So what is it, like January 18? It's whatever the first weekend of school is, hopefully, if, it's not a, if it doesn't get scratched. So, uh, But yeah, we start, we start training uh, January 4th. And then uh, two weeks from there is our first match. Do
0: you think as of now that you guys will have a spring season or are you still a little skeptical
1: yeah. about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm usually a, you know, kind of, I'll, 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 t- I'll go, I'll go negative and hope for the best, but I, I, I truly think that we're good. Tennis is good for the nature of our sport. We already practice social distancing, um, in our sport, So, you know, maybe, maybe we don't get on an airplane, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of places we can go drive and play a tennis match. Are you allowed to gamble as a coach? Uh, no, I'm you not. gotta still abide by those rules. I can't gamble on anything that there's an NCAA title for. So it's so the I, exact same. So I, it's us. the same as you guys.
0: We hope to. I hope to see you in person and meet you in person uh, sometime soon. But uh, you know, it's always a pleasure, and uh, you know, being alongside Alex with this podcast, you gonna I'm going to follow his tennis career, and you know, someone like you, that's just a, a great guy and a, and a good coach. that have seen the development that you've had it. at a a, you know lmu which is hoping to be a you know nationally ranked uh program for years to come so uh good luck to you and and we'll be following uh you know hopefully more of crack Rackets uh listeners will will dive into the lmu program and,
1: and be a part of that appreciate it thank you and you know best of luck to you and uh your future as well
2: yeah thank you very much um also, thanks thanks to uh, Crack Rockets. Thank you to DraftKings, our sponsor, and uh, hopefully I can win uh, a couple dual matches in the spring, and we can have uh, my coach on here again. But uh, yeah, I just I can't thank you enough, Coach. Um, Tom has just been such a great guy to me. Always, uh, he brought me here. He's been a fantastic coach and also like a big brother slash father type figure. So uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this, and it's been it's been really awesome. My pleasure. Appreciate it. All right, till next time.